You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Mori at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And then Genesis 22, 6 through 14. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So I'm going to ask if you would stand with me and we'll recite our congregational verse together. So if you would kindly stand and let's recite this together. Psalm 19, 7 through 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, Britain and New York City are facing the same problem. And the problem is there's a mass exit out of the cities. Uh, in other words, both are experiencing rates they've never seen before of people looking for greener communities, quiet and safer places to call home. In fact, right now in New York City, there are a record number, over 13,000 vacant apartments from people leaving due to some, the fear of COVID, uh, looking for safer places, given some of the violence that's been going on, and also the phenomenon which has hit Boston in certain parts, gentrification, where you have tremendous differences between income levels, forcing many people to exit the city. Uh, with all of that going on, it reminds us of our study. We're studying exodus, old and new. And the word itself means to exit or depart. But this morning, what I'd like us to look at is an individual who was not on an exodus away from the city, but actually was called by God for an exodus to the city and to a heavenly city. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And so we're going to take a look this morning in our study of the exodus of some interesting events that happened in the life of Abraham uh, that in many ways are a picture to us of what ultimately Christ will do as he has delivered us out of sin. And this is such a, a big part of the word of God. So looking at Exodus chapter 12, I'll actually have you back up into chapter 11 and verse 31 because we're going to consider Abraham's life in terms of three Exodus events that are worthy of note. And this will be the first one. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 31. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So the first exodus we're going to consider is how God moved Abraham, his exodus out of Ur and Haran. So you notice this passage tells us that Abram's father was Terah. Uh, now you'll hear me at times say Abram, Abraham, the same individual. His name is going to later be changed in Genesis to Abraham. Uh, but as I use that, we're talking about the same person. So he's moved first out of Haran. Haran is located today in southeastern modern Baghdad. So that gives you a, a, a geographical kind of thought here where we're talking about. And in ancient times, Haran was known for its polytheism. In other words, the worship of many gods. It was the seat of the pagan worship of the moon god. Now I tell you that to kind of remind us when people think about well, why did God pick Abram. You know, why did he choose him? It had nothing to do with his background. You don't look at Abraham and say, well, he was a really good church-going young man, and that's why God picked him. No. He, he grew up in an environment that was ungodly. Haran is no better. Haran is modern-day Turkey. Uh, so you have these two places where first Abram, with his family, by his dad, is moved to 
Haran, and then he stays there, but then God will move him further. And so you'll see in chapter 12 now, verses 1 through 3, that exodus out of Haran. Let me read these verses. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, it's striking that God's first words to Abraham, which you have here, and his last words to Abraham, which occur later in Genesis, both include imperatives or commands. So no matter when you look at Abraham's life, from beginning to the end, God is commanding his servant in terms of here and on the Exodus to leave Ur and to leave Haran. But looking at that more closely, you'll notice that an Exodus involves leaving what is familiar. And if any of you have ever moved, you know somewhat what that's like to leave familiar surroundings, to leave familiar people. And even though God will call Abram out of Haran, and he will take a large group of his family with him, it is still a movement where he's leaving what is very familiar. And so if you look closely at verse 1, you see what that involves. Leave your country, leave your people and leave your father's household. Now, we tend to live today in a quite a mobile culture, but that was not the way it was in ancient times. Your, your community, your family was an extended unit, and you basically tended to stay with that community your entire life. So this is a monumental step, as we know of faith, where God's saying, Abram, I want you to leave these three things. In other words, the thought being, you're leaving everything that at this point determines what you would say is your identity, who you are, the people around you. But then you see as well in verses 2 and 3, God speaks of a blessing. Now, our theme is Exodus old and new. So we're considering how, how powerful is this theme just woven through the Bible? Now, we're not going to go through all 66 books, so don't be thinking, oh, no, this is going to be like a 12-year series. Uh, but we'll see overall how this is so dominant. But you notice in verses 2 and 3, there's a five-fold blessing that's promised on Abram as God has called him out of his land. Now, why is that important that it's a five-fold blessing? Well, it has nothing really to do with the significance of the number five, which doesn't really have a tremendous amount of significance scripturally. But what is interesting is in Genesis 3, when God judges Adam and Eve for sinning, there's a five-fold curse that's given. Here, in a sense, you see in calling Abram out, it's almost as if God is saying, here's the five-fold blessing. I am doing a new work in you. This is a new unfolding part of God's plan of salvation. So to go on an exodus is to leave behind what is very familiar. And it calls for faith and obedience to God. Because Abram doesn't have the rest of Genesis to read ahead. We have the benefit. We can look ahead in Genesis and say, 
oh yes, God did bless him. Uh, and he saw not the full completion of these promises, but he saw some of them unfolding. Abram did not have that. All he had was God's command that I want you to get up, leave your country, your people, and everything, and follow me. And it even gets better because you notice the last part of verse 1. I want you to get up and leave and go to a land, what? I will show you. What faith is required there? Obedience. Abram is told by God, I, I will show you where that is. And you want to keep in mind this word show, because it's going to come up again as we look at a couple passages in Exodus. It means to see something or to have it revealed to you. So just kind of tuck that in the back of your mind as we'll look at where else that same word is used in other Exodus events in Abram's life. But what a reminder that this exodus out of Ur and Haran will require the obedience on the part of Abraham. And not only do you have that comment in verse 1, I will show you, but then jump to verse 4, the third word in. So Abraham left. Then you get down to verse 5, almost the end of it, and they set out. I mean, we have no record of hesitation. No record of debating with God. You know, did I hear you right? Did you say you would show me? Or maybe you meant to tell me, but you just forgot to tell me. Uh, God calls him to go out by faith. Compare this opening exodus in Abraham's life with something that's said in Hebrews. So you can turn to Hebrews 11 if you would like. Otherwise, you can just listen as I read this. In Hebrews 11 you have a, a whole history of those who have walked by faith. So Abraham isn't the only individual who walked by faith. Uh, we have countless examples before us. And the purpose of these examples is to encourage you and me that we can walk by faith, that, that God can be trusted when he calls us to new experiences, when he places new and challenging situations in our life, that move us out of what is familiar to trust more in God, that we have a precedent for that in Scripture. So if you look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, are a few verses that describe our friend Abraham. Listen to what it says. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his way home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose foundations, the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. There we have, Abraham, on an exodus, not from the city, but to the city. And not to just any earthly city, not even to specifically the promised land, although he would get an opportunity to, to be in that, but not see the fulfillment of that. He, he really had his eyes set on this city whose maker and architect was God. What, what an encouragement Abraham should be to us in our walk with Christ. 
So there we have the first kind of exodus event in Abram's life. But there's another one. If you go back to Genesis 12, a second exodus is talked about in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. There you have an exodus out of Egypt. So often when we think of Exodus, we jump immediately to the book of Exodus. And we'll look at that Exodus next week. But this is to remind us there's many different Exoduses before you get to that one that kind of stands out to us. So looking at Exodus 12 and verses 10 through 20, you have a scene here where Abram and his family will head into Egypt. Uh, and I won't read the entire passage, but let's zero in on a couple verses. Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now if you know anything about the Old Testament, does this sound a little familiar? There's a severe famine, so we're going to have to head to Egypt to, because of the Nile River, um, seem to be having plenty of fruit and food. Uh, yeah, we're going to see this again later in Israel's history. So you could almost say you have a, a, a small glimpse through the life of Abraham. What is going to happen later on with even the people of Israel? Not just that fivefold blessing, but the experiences that they will face as they obey God. But then go to verse 17. And I'll fill in a few details here. So Abram goes to Egypt, um, and his wife is very attractive, Sarah. Uh, it's interesting because they speculate she may have been like 65 at this time, but he speaks of her being, the, in the Hebrew, she's really hot. Oh, it doesn't say that in the Hebrew, but, you know, she's very attractive. So he's concerned. So he says, look, when we get into Egypt, you're to say you're my sister. And, and there were a lot of dynamics where, you could kind of do something like this, but, but he, he was not truthful. So here you have a glimpse where we can look at and say, well, why didn't he just trust God? Like, like he trusted him to first leave. Well, because Abraham is a lot like us. Uh, his trust fluctuates, although he is an example of faith. But he goes and he lies about that. Pharaoh recognizes her beauty, and he apparently takes her in as one of his wives. But then you get to verse 17 and God's judgment on this. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. Now, what is striking here, you have two words mentioned in verse 10, famine, and in verse 17, uh, serious diseases. Uh, the first two times those exact words like this are mentioned in the first five books of the Old Testament are here and in Exodus 12, talking about God's deliverance of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So already there's kind of like a subtle connection we should make when we get to Exodus 12 and you're reading and you're like, wait a minute, I've heard those two words before. And the first time they're mentioned was here, where God is taking Abram on an exodus out of Egypt. But you'll notice as well in this scene, uh, if you look a little further at this passage, uh, verses 19 and 20 of Genesis chapter 12. 
So God's judgment is on Pharaoh. Abram acknowledges she is my wife. Uh, there's a sense in which the Egyptian ruler fears God in this because the power of the, the affliction of the diseases. Again, doesn't that sound a little familiar? When God sends the plagues on the nation of Egypt, uh, Pharaoh will eventually be forced to recognize his magicians can't do this. He cannot mimic it. He cannot stop it. He is at the mercy of God's judgment. So look what happens in verses 19 and 20. Pharaoh says, why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Do those words sound, again, familiar? Take her and go. They sent him. Those are words of an exodus, departure. Get out. Leave. Isn't it interesting how God moves among his people? And so we've seen an exodus out of Ur and Haran. We've seen an exodus out of Egypt, which is going to remind us of a another exodus out of Egypt, a much greater one that's down the road. But then we come to the third exodus experience of Abraham. And this one, I'm including two events in this because it's a third exodus experience that points us to a greater exodus to come. That, that God is delivering Abram, Abraham, but all of these deliverances are, are like a a telescope to tell us something much greater is down the road. In other words, they foreshadow a greater exodus to come. And so go with me now to Genesis chapter 15. So a little background is, is helpful here. Uh, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. He is to be the, the, the head of the nation. He is the patriarch. Uh, God is going to work through Abraham to bring about a great nation. I don't know if how many of you caught, it was like two weeks ago, uh, Abraham was in the news. Uh, and that is you had a big press conference where President Trump announced they had signed the Abraham Accords. Now, probably most people did not catch the significance of why were they calling it the Abraham Accords? Because it was an agreement, an alliance between Israel, who sees Abraham as their founding father, and the United Arab Emirate and Bahrain. But there was a reason they picked that name Abraham. And you could argue whether they realize it or not, they're picking that because that's what scripture teaches. So you get to Genesis 15, and, and God's going to make this covenant. Now, a covenant is a binding agreement. Uh, there are different kind of binding agreements. You can do a bilateral covenant, which means both sides uh, are going to bring something to the table, and there's an agreement. This is a unilateral covenant. Basically, it's all God. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. It, it's going to happen because I'm God and because I will see that this happens. So I want to draw your attention to verses 9 and 10. So it says, so the Lord said to him, Abram, 
Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, this scene seems very foreign to us, but not in ancient culture. So you're going to ratify a covenant. You're going to each be fully understanding the conditions of that covenant. And that covenant would involve sacrifices. And the reason you cut these sacrifices up is what you're actually saying is, in making this pledge, if I break any of these conditions, may that happen to me. May, may I be cut up into pieces and judged because I've not kept the responsibilities of the covenant. So here, Abram is doing this. You notice in verse 11, you almost might think this is comical. You know, he cuts all this up, and obviously it's going to attract birds and everything else. And so he's busy kind of getting the birds of prey to flee away. What, what is somewhat interesting here is, is there something more behind this? Because in the Old Testament, whenever you read of birds of prey, they symbolize foreign nations. And, and is it possible that even in this, we have a, a vague reference to God will protect his nation, Israel, from invasion from foreign nations because they're his people. Now, we're dealing with ancient history here, but do we see that as being true over the course of history where God does exodus his people? He protects them. He delivers them from foreign powers. And many would say even today it is amazing that, that Israel continues to be a center of attention because it's not a huge country. Uh, it's not known for its military might. Uh, but could it be there's a much bigger reason why it continues to be strategically a concern to many people in our world? But in this case, you have this scene where it goes on now. Look at verse 17 and 18. So everything is in place. But Abram falls into a deep sleep. And then this is what happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, and Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. So we go back to Genesis 12. God promised this. Abram was saying, well, Lord, how do I know this is going to happen? So God ratifies, confirms the covenant without any involvement of Abram. In other words, to say, it's all on me. This is going to happen because I'm God and because I'm faithful. It's not a bilateral covenant. It's not dependent on what you do but I will see this come about. Think of how that relates to our salvation in Christ. You did nothing. I did nothing. The only thing we brought to that was our sin. Christ died on our behalf. We were 
lost in sin when all that happened. We, we didn't initiate it. We didn't even ask for it, though we desperately needed it because we were already living in exile from him because of sin. What, what a common thread you see here now. Just like we speak of our salvation being God's covenant of redemption. Here you have a picture of a covenant that's all because of who God is. And so you notice in particular, verse 17, this, this imagery that God is going to confirm this covenant and he will send this smoking fire pot and a blazing torch to pass through these animals to confirm it. So once again, certain terms here that show up in other Exodus passages. So notice, for example, smoking fire pot, blazing torch. How did God lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Did he send them out and guide them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire? Were those symbols of what we would call a theophany, God manifesting his presence among them? in a very physical way. Isn't that what God is doing here? There's, there's no doubt that God's presence and God himself is confirming this covenant. And then notice it says as well that those symbols passed between the pieces. The exact same word that's used in Exodus 12 about how God delivered his people, how he passed over them as the blood was spread on the doorpost and his wrath fell upon the Egyptians, but not upon the firstborn of the Israelites. What, what a connection. That's not there just by accident or isn't that a weird coincidence, but is God already saying to us, look how his word is so connected and look how the exodus of Abram foreshadows a much greater Exodus that's to come. But now turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. So we go a little further on in Abram's life now. Now we're dealing with Abraham. Uh, but the well-known story about Abraham and his son Isaac. And the, just the unique situation here where, where God tells him that I want you to go up to this mount and you are to prepare to sacrifice Isaac to me. Now again, think of everything you might know about Isaac, this one that God promised, that the seed would come from Abram and Sarah, from not an outside element. And yet here he is, Isaac is probably, we can estimate, maybe like a teenager at this point. I've sometimes said jokingly, that's why it was easy for him to sacrifice him. Uh, but, but the reality is he's, he's old enough. He helps carry stuff up the mountain He's aware of what's going on. He's, he's not an infant. Uh, let's assume he's like a teenager. He's knowledgeable, aware of the surroundings. And, and in the midst of this, imagine again Abram's faith. The same God who called him out of Ur and Haran is saying, God has commanded me this. So God must be great enough where if actually I do this, he's going to raise up Isaac. He's going to fulfill what he promised. But let's see how this unfolds. Go to verse 7. And in verse 7, the son speaks up. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, 
Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Is it possible that Abraham at this point knew as little as he did when God first called him to leave his homeland? I'll, I'll take you to a place that I will show you. And here all Abraham, sa Abraham says is, God himself will provide the lamb. That word provide is the same word used in Genesis 12, I will show you. So I will show you, I will provide is the exact same Hebrew word. And you can't say that Abraham wasn't connecting. I've heard God say this to me before, and he's always been faithful. So it's, it's interesting, the dialogue between Isaac and his father here is exactly the same number of words in the original language. So in other words, Isaac's question has six words in it. Abraham's reply has exactly six words in it back to him. But let's see what happens in this scene. Go down to verses 10 through 12. So imagine this, that everything is set. Isaac is on the wood, ready to be sacrificed. Then in verse 10, referring to Abraham, then he reached out, or excuse me, let me back up here to verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And you can't read that without thinking, where have we heard something like that before? Your son, your only son, your only begotten son, your unique son. And so it is abruptly stopped by God himself, having an angel, in a sense, grab that hand as that knife was ready to come down. But then look what happens next in Abraham's response in verses 10 through 12. Let me pick up at verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In this Exodus scene in Abraham's life, you see that God demands a sacrifice. That there must be payment for our sins. And notice that in this, it has to be a one and only son. And yet, when Isaac is spared, God provides a sacrifice. And you notice what that said there in particular in the verse 14. The Lord will provide. Same word as 
when Isaac was asked about where's the sacrifice and Abraham said the Lord will provide that literally you've heard the title this is God saying I am Jehovah Jireh the Lord will provide but but what it means is the Lord will see he will reveal himself and in this case what an amazing twist in the faithfulness of God that he provides a sacrifice a sacrifice that is to be totally consumed a sacrifice that must die to be efficacious to satisfy the justice of God keep that in mind as I read these words from Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 through 32 in Romans chapter 8 Paul is talking about what we have in Christ but you get to Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 and 32 Keep in mind, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But his Jewish upbringing and background, we know that he was steeped in the Old Testament. So listen to what he says here under the inspiration of God in verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Notice what Paul says here. He who did not spare his own son. You want to know what the tremendous difference between Abraham and Isaac and the offering there and this offering? is God, God did not intervene in this one. The knife came down on his son. He was crucified. He didn't have a last-minute appeasement, a last-minute intervention. You had God the Father pouring out his wrath on a sinless sacrifice to provide his justice being met, to provide forgiveness for you and for me. It's amazing just these scenes in Exodus are great. They teach us about what faith should look like but they're constantly causing us to look up to a greater exodus, a greater deliverance that is ours in Jesus Christ. Because the theme of exodus is continually before us in the scriptures. And maybe by studying it this way, we'll be more attuned to seeing that when we come across it. One New Testament scholar has, has been so overwhelmed by this thought of exodus in scripture, he, he simply says this, it's the only thing that ever happens in the Bible. But in other words, no matter where you turn, and for that alone, we should thank God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that these words, we would not forget them, that we would go over them, that we would have a hunger to better understand how you have delivered in the past, how you are delivering us in the present in Christ, and what that ultimate deliverance will look like in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.